welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. That would be me. I'm awfully glad that we have this time together today. I hope your day is going well. I'm always uh, looking forward to the time that we get to spend together because life can be filled with difficulties and obstacles and it can also be filled with great rejoicing. I know there's a lot of things that we're celebrating and it's also a time to be reflective and to think of, you know, with this downtime and the pandemic, it gives you more time to uh, be home, which is good for a lot of people and it's not good for a lot of people. So I hope you're finding that good balancing point where you're enjoying the time and you're also um, doing a lot of good reflecting. I think God wants us to meditate on his word. He wants us to focus on him. And when you get a, something like this going on in the world, I know I've not gone out very much like you, and I've stayed home with my Bible and had it on my lap. And I've spent more time with the Lord, I think, in the last three months than, than I've had in a while. And it's really been wonderful. And frankly, I can't get enough and I want more. So I always call on my great theologian friends and I say, come on in and, and let's do Bible study. And uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is just one of my faves. And he was going to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, but we had a little bit of a schedule glitch. So I don't want to disappoint you who like Greg and his teaching. So I've uh, got a, a little message that he uh, interviewed that we did a little while ago about uh, what hills to uh, climb, what hills to uh, die on, what hills to bleed on, and what hills to avoid altogether. It's a wonderful uh, talk, and I think it's going to be really fitting right now for this time in our world. And So let's uh, hear from Dr. Greg Borgon. Dr. Greg Borgon is president and founder of Heart Abbey Warrior Ministries. He's taught in graduate and postgraduate schools for many years. He's authored many uh, award-winning books. And he is uh, one of my favorite guests. And he comes to us today from his secure bunker in his home. Greg, welcome. Well, it's good to be here, even if at a distance. <laughs> I agree. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about this present situation we're in and some of the things that we should be uh, considering and thinking about and being prayerful about. Sure. You know, being forced to kind of shelter in place can remind us uh, what really matters in life. I think you would agree, Bill. Um, what we thought was important has become less so. Amen. What we have, what we have forgotten, what was important, has kind of surged to the front of our lives. So, no doubt, many of us have been examining the majors and the minors of our life. Um, have we been majoring in minors or minoring in majors? In any case, it may be time to reassess what's most important. Well, when life begins to return to some degree of normalcy, and we hope that's going to be in the near future. What, we will, what will we focus on? You know, what, what are we going to prioritize in our lives? What will we release or relegate to the bin of unimportance? What will we turn our energies to? What will we engage in? What will we let pass us by? What can we positively influence and what is out of our control? Every conflict, crisis, or emergency forced on us by circumstances, events, or encounters require wisdom to determine whether to make a stand or not get involved at all. Sometimes the better part of wisdom is to simply walk away. Mm -hmm. We may be faced with a difference of opinion or an assault on our beliefs and values, which requires wisdom to determine whether to engage with whatever power we have available or not engage. Sometimes circumstances, well, they'll dictate 
in one instance to engage while in another instance not engage. Premature engagement may cause more harm than good. So how do we decide when to get involved? Well, the scriptures give us guidance when they remind us to be wise, to evaluate our circumstances, and to assess possible outcomes of engagement. We can choose not to make an issue of the matter for the sake of peace, for grace or forbearance. We can choose to engage. We must always clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 15 and 16, we read, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, the scripture says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So every follower of Christ, Bill, every leader, every person for that matter, should determine in advance what hills to die on, what hills to bleed on, and and what hills not to climb at all. Mm. Doing so provides a framework of knowing when to engage regardless of the circumstances, when to engage in consideration of the circumstances, and when to withhold engagement in spite of the circumstances. Okay. We can't... Go ahead. No, Greg, I just have to say right off the bat, you are asking and raising such important questions. So I just want to thank you as we get uh, going uh, that you are just really prompting us to be um, uh, examining our hearts and, and praying for discernment. Because these are these are really important, and I appreciate uh, your thoughts so far. So I'm just I'm just saying uh, I like what I'm hearing so far. Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking, Bill, that just because we have the time on our hands right now, we're starting to think about these kind of deeper things, and we need to be making some decisions about what we're going to do do coming out of this situation. We cannot go to battle on every issue that comes our way. We can die on every, we can't die on every hill. We can't bleed on every hill or we'll figuratively die, cease to have any impact prematurely. Frankly, there are many hills we shouldn't be climbing at all. Mm -hmm. There's someone else's hill to die on or someone else's hill to bleed on. Well, first of all, to determine what hills to die on, what hills to bleed on, and what hills we shouldn't be climbing at all, we need godly wisdom. James 1.5 tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. But only if we ask. Let's consider what hills to die on, what hills to bleed on, and what hills shouldn't be climbed at all. Well, to first of all, what are the hills we should be dying on? As I mentioned earlier, you can't die on every hill. Dying may not require your life, but it may require something just as permanent or painful. Choosing to die on a hill may mean that you're willing to embrace the consequences of engaging, even if it means you'll lose the goodwill of others, you'll marginalize your advancement prospects, or even lose your position, ranking, or job. The hill I choose to die on may not require my life, but it may require sacrificing popularity or acclaim or prestige or acceptance or affirmation. It may require that I set aside my dreams and aspirations for a higher reason. It may also mean that I may be marginalized or even ostracized. So what hills are worth dying on? First, they should be few in number. Second, they should ensure laws, divine and secular, will not be violated. Third, they should honor our faith. Fourth, they should uphold our central beliefs and values. In other words, 
the matter is too important to ignore because it would mean that your character or faith is compromised. And finally, they should not uh, protect, or they should protect the defenseless, the unloved, and the marginalized. Now, these hills are not always a matter of public engagement. They may be a private or personal commitment, such as a commitment to live out certain beliefs and values, having decided which ones are non-negotiable. They may include putting the welfare and well-being of our family as our highest priority, and that will never compromise this commitment for any reason. They may include a commitment to submit to some cause, people, group, or belief system that uh, will stand in authority over our lives, informing and conditioning what we do. They will be the non-negotiables of our lives, something we will never sacrifice on the altar of expediency or political correctness. So if you think about it, you should be able to pretty quickly come up with those few uh, that you would be willing to die for. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that you're, you're unwilling to compromise, that you're not going to give any ground on. So the questions we need to ask ourselves in this case are, what hills are you prepared to die on? Uh, what our, are the non-negotiables yeah. Greg, of your give life? our listeners an example of a hill you're just going to die on. Well, for my own case, I've selected four, uh, and only four. They're the, the ones I've decided to die on. The first one is my faith, the gospel and its obligations, you know, according to Titus two eleven through 14, that I'm going to um, not be living in the world. As, I'll be a part of the world, but I'm going to give up uh, worldliness, and live upright and controlled lives under, under God. So my faith, that's something I won't compromise. A, a, a second one might be my family, responsibility for their well-being. I'm going to do everything I can to protect them, to provide a safe and secure place for them. It says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if we don't do that, then we're worse than an infidel. Another, the third one for me, the hill to die on, is my focus, my life purpose. I've got to be living in accordance with the trajectory God set for me in terms of my wiring, my, you know, in accordance with, with my personal beliefs, my values, you know, the hills I'll die on. And the last one for me, the fourth one, is my fidelity, the Bible and its authority. I'm not going to compromise on that either. So those are, those are the four hills that I'm prepared to die on. That's a fantastic list. And did, did that list come to you like in two minutes? <laughs> no, no, this is something I've been thinking about for a while. Okay. You know, when I started off making this list, Bill, I probably had 10 to 15 things. And I said, you know what? I'm going to die prematurely here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've got to reduce this list to the irreducible minimums, and that's what I came up with. Okay, I love this, Greg. So we're talking about, with Dr. Greg Borgon, hills to die on, hills to bleed on, and hills not to climb. And she's done a fantastic job of talking about hills to die on. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, on hills to bleed on with Dr. Greg, Greg Borgon. You can head over to his website, heartofawarrior.org heartofawarrior.org we'll be right back all right welcome back to the show dr greg borgon is my guest and we're talking about hills to die on hills to bleed on and Hills not to climb, and unsolicited, uh, Greg, a listener uh, <laughs> named Emily said, "For me, faith, family, pro-life values." 
What a great list. Yeah, that's great. That's a great list. I'm glad that she's able to identify those clearly. Yeah, and because this is a great exercise for people, if you are coming up in your mind with what your list is, uh, the hills that you're going to die on, uh, send them to me. I'd love to see what they are. 877-933-2484. 877-93-FAITH. Let's talk about hills to bleed on, Greg. You can't bleed on every hill. If you bleed on too many hills, you'll die prematurely. So maybe we should talk about what bleeding on a hill means. Well, uh, I've known people who make an issue of every issue. It isn't <laughs> long be- before what they say is automatically discounted, regardless of its importance. If, if you make an issue of every issue, no one will take seriously any issue. You have made an issue. Good point. In Ecclesiastes 8.6, we read, For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Hills to bleed on is a metaphor for issues and concerns for which we're willing to take a stand given certain circumstances. They're situational in nature and change in terms of how, why, and when we will respond. Environmental factors condition whether we choose to say something or do something. Given the alignment and significance of contributing factors, we we may choose to engage given the right situation, but not willing to die for that issue. These issues are selected based on their importance, their possible effect and or effect on the outcome, or most importantly, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God calls us to make a stand and other times to remain silent. One day you may choose to engage the issue, while at other times you may choose not to engage. This doesn't mean that you're hypocritical or a weather vane moving in the direction of a prevailing sentiment or political correctness. It simply means that you've measured the circumstance or event and have chosen that this is not a hill to bleed on. At other times, however, the circumstance or event may be a hill to bleed on. That is, to risk your reputation, to negatively impact your relationships, or to lose respect or esteem, which could be the product of your engagement. In any case, choosing a hill to bleed on requires wisdom and the leading and conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hills to bleed on are not a matter of personal choice or feeling of obligation. Hills to bleed on are stimulated and instigated by the Lord. They're uh, energized by divine compulsion, and they're really engaged because you're led to do so by the Lord. So the questions we need to ask ourselves with regard to the hills we'll bleed on are, what hills will you consider bleeding on if the circumstances warrant? What hills is God's Spirit prompting you to climb? What issue demands your involvement in the moment? So that's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about, Bill, with regard to hills to bleed on. They're not our hills. They're God's hills. Okay. Uh, Greg, do you have an illustration of what a hill to bleed on might look like or an issue that that maybe you bled on yourself? Well, uh, you know, one of the issues is abortion, something that I'm absolutely opposed to, to taking the life of, of an innocent one. But when you're in a mixed group, and um, especially with unfamiliar um, surroundings, you may not choose to engage because it's going to cause more harm than good because you'll be vilified or it'll be somehow leveraged to say something negative. Um, and so in that particular case, even though you feel strongly about it or I felt strongly about it, I choose not to engage. And other times, I'm compelled by the spirit to engage regardless of the cost mm-hmm. uh, on that same issue. Uh, when I feel that there's going to be a dialogue or that I'm going to be listened to, right. um, 
as well as me listening to somebody else's point of view. And in that particular case, it may be a sign or a leading of the spirit for me to really engage this issue. Does that make sense, Bill? It does make sense, yeah. Yep. All right, let's move on to hills not to climb at all. All right. There are many hills we're not called to climb. They may be important, but they're not urgent. I would suggest that there are far more hills not to climb than you may know. Hmm. This does not mean that the matter before you is not important or worth consideration. It simply means that you're not the one called to address it. The issue or concern is someone else's hill to die on or someone else's hill to bleed on. The intrinsic worth of the issue may be significant, but you're not the one to deal with it. You may hold certain convictions about it. You may disagree or agree with it. You may have something to contribute regarding it, but have decided it's a hill you won't climb. Reasons for this conclusion may be decisions you made regarding the hills to die on or the hills to bleed on beforehand. This is not one of them. Or the criteria for engagement, which uh, you've decided beforehand is not met. Or engagement in this situation will do more damage than constructive help. If a situation arises where you're trying to decide what to do, here's the following criteria that I would consider with regard to hills to die on or hills to bleed on or hills not to climb at all. First question I would ask myself, Bill, is, is it a hill I've already decided to die on? If it is, you're going to make a stand, mm -hmm. regardless of the cost. Secondly, is it a hill I'm prepared or led, more importantly, to bleed on? That's where you have to be sensitive to the movement of the Spirit in your life, the prompting of God. And it may call you to do so, even though your emotions well up, as the Scripture says, even though anxiety weighs heavily on your soul, you may not. Uh, be led to go ahead and engage it at that particular point in time. Number three, is it a hill someone else should die on or bleed on? Is it, you, you know, is it your own personal hobby horse? You might want to disregard that already. Mm -hmm. Or if it is somebody else's uh, hill to die on or bleed on, why are you doing it? So number four, is it a hill I've already decided not to climb? You know, when we sit down and we put together a ledger of the things I can influence and the things I can't influence, that it may be concerned about, that may be good criteria to decide what hills not to climb. And number five, is it really majoring in minors? Are we making a large issue out of a small concern or a small concern out of a large issues? So the questions we would ask ourselves in this case about hills to, um, that we shouldn't be climbing at all, what hills are you not called to climb at all? That's the first question you have to answer. What hills are others urging you to climb, but you know you shouldn't. A lot of people will come to us and, and urge us to do something because they feel strongly about it, but God may not be calling you to do that. Somebody else's crisis is not your emergency. Um, but the other question you should probably ask yourself, what hills do not meet the criteria of the hill to die on or bleed on? So each man or woman must decide for themselves what hills they'll die on, what hills they'll bleed on, and what hills aren't. Uh, not to be climbed at all. Of course, uh, in, the, in the course of your life, that will change. And as I've already shared with you, I shared with you the hills I'm prepared to die on under uh, any circumstance. But the others, the hills to bleed on, are going to be situational or circumstantial. And I can decide ahead of time what hills I'm not even going to climb. So the hills we will bleed on will be hills God calls me to bleed on, my hills will be different than your hills, Bill. The hills I will bleed on will be his hills and not my hills. That's one of the problems I had in the past was, was making them my hills instead of God's hills. 
Um, the hill's not worth climbing as everything else. I've learned over time, and I'm in my 70s now, that I was dying on too many hills. The hills I was bleeding on were my hills and not his hills. And the hills I uh, was not to climb at all were far more than I originally thought. So for the listeners, I would just simply ask you these three simple questions. What hills will you die on? What hills will you bleed on? What hills should you not climb at all? Hopefully, mm. Bill, that's helped to our listeners to kind of think through in this time of being apart from everybody and everything and, and sheltering in place. And these are some things that need to be thought through. And now God's given you the time to do that in the midst of this terrible crisis, this pandemic we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Greg, you know, a verse that popped into my head was Proverbs 25, verse 11, that says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And when you talk about discernment, you know, what hills are you willing to bleed on? I sometimes think that God will give you the courage, strength, and discernment to speak up when it's appropriate, when you're going to be listened to, when you're not going to, um, you know, turn more people off than attract. Yeah, I mean, when you tune your heart to the heart of God, you're going to hear his voice distinctly. As we've talked about in previous shows, Bill, that God speaks most profoundly in a still, small voice. And the reason he does is because it forces us to lean forward to hear it. Yeah. And so if if we're not taking that time in the midst of the emotions of the moment, we're not going to be able to make the right decision about whether or not we should engage or we shouldn't engage. Yeah, and of course, it's difficult, uh, Greg, whether it's our personal uh a strong opinion, or is it God's calling on our life when we're, exactly. you know, so that's where it gets a little, uh, where you need God, you need the Holy Spirit to help you understand that. Yeah. You know, if, if your listeners, I, I don't know if this is okay, Bill, but if your listeners want to explore this a little bit further or even contact me directly about this, these issues, I'd be glad to talk to them about it. They can reach me at greg at heartofawarrior.org. Greg with one uh, G at heartofawarrior.org, and I'd be glad to to um, talk to them about it. That is the generous nature of you, <laughs> Greg. That's uh, one of the things I just like about you. You're a complete uh, open book, and you just say, come, I will help you. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Greg at heartofawarrior.org is where Greg can be reached personally if you want to uh, ask him a question. Greg, thanks for doing the show. I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days real soon. <laughs> I hope it's in Ireland, Bill. That'd be nice. <laughs> That'd be nice. All right. All right. Have a great uh, afternoon. Blessings. All right. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. His website is heartofawarrior.org. Awesome. And I've also tapped Pastor Tom Paris to join me in the next half hour. We're going to borrow him from Guide Talk, and we're going to chat about some church business and apologetics, something that I love. We'll be right back. Faith Radio. I don't think Tom Parrish has his own walk-up music, but Here Comes the Sun probably be a good one for him because <laughs> he is uh, delightfully happy, energetic, and ready to talk about God's Word. He's a retired Lutheran pastor, and he's on the Guy Talk panel uh, weekly. So, Tom, welcome to the show on your Bill, own special slot. Your- yeah. Good time. Yeah. So I want to start with a little church business, just because I had a, a caller, a uh, listener, call and say, I need to have one of the pastors from Guide Talk 
try to answer this question for me. The church, our church is going to be bringing in an associate pastor who will eventually re- replace the senior pastor when he retires. And the committee, some think the pastor should be on the calling committee and some think, some think that he shouldn't be. So a couple of questions. Uh, can this pastor be truly objective? And is it fair to put the pastor in that position? Good question. And uh, I've actually had to think about this a little bit. There are a couple of things I would throw out right away that I think are very important. First of all, you got to get the emotion out of it for how you feel about the pastor. Uh, some people are going to love the pastor that's currently there. Some people are not going to be as thrilled and think you should move on, whatever it may be. But the first question I want to ask above everything else is I would ask the leadership, does the congregation have a clear and functioning vision as to the mission of the church? If there is no clear and functioning vision, then the current pastor who's there probably isn't going to be able to help a whole lot. Uh, Do they really have a goal in their mission? Do they really know where they're going as a congregation? Because I've been a pastor for 40 years. I've been senior pastor all of that time in different churches. Here's the bottom line. The measure of the church is not the senior pastor. The measure of the church is Jesus Christ. The goal of the senior pastor is to lead the body into the relationship with Jesus and becoming his disciples and making disciples out of that. I would want to hear that. And if the leadership of the church cannot articulate that and cannot talk about what that mission really is and be in unity because of what that pastor has done, then I'm not sure the pastor is going to be a great help in the transition. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, so it's important to have that clear mission and that can be um, articulated well, so they would know exactly what they're looking for in this new pastor. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you got to have that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so agreement's a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> well, if you don't have the agreement, here's the problem. Everybody's coming with their own agenda. And what happens in call committees is that it's kind of like, uh, I, I've seen it happen to people. They, they've been married for a long time. They get divorced, and about two years later, they start dating, and it's like they've lost their minds. Mm -hmm. They're just all excited about dating again. Call committees can get excited about a new pastor or calling a new pastor without really thinking through, what did we have? How effective was it? How did we fulfill the mission? And would Jesus say to us on that day of judgment, well done and good and fruitful servant? If we can't, or we don't think it can go that way, or we're all over the place, then there's some real issues. And... Uh, God bless the pastor who's there, but the pastor who's there didn't do the job that should have been done. Mm-hmm. Tom, I've been thinking about what's going on in our country lately with some violence and what appears to be a tremendous amount of evil. And I go to Ephesians six twelve that says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's true. There, There is a real dark force of Satan and his demons out there working hard. But let me explain what I mean by that. When I entered the ministry many years ago, the first 15 to 20 years, I kept getting beat up. In other words, things would happen and I'd get, you know, in trouble. I'd have problems. It would filter over into my family. It would filter into my parenting. It would filter into my thinking, even to the point where I thought maybe I should do something else with my life. And it was about 20 years into that when I finally had a chance to go to a conference with Francis McNutt and his wife, Sabrina. And they uh, had been very much into healing ministry and deliverance ministry. 
And what I liked is he gave a very logical understanding of the spiritual realm. And as I began to listen to what he was saying, and I began to apply that to my ministry, things dramatically began to change to where not every problem is a human problem. Not every problem is what is presented up front. Problems often go much deeper than that. And they're usually in some form of uh, abuse or ritual. Uh, I've had couples come to my church, literally, Bill, out of the blue and say, we heard a voice in the car said, go in and hear what he has to say. <laughs> wow. And on that very Sunday, I'm talking about witchcraft oh, and wow. why the Bible says stay away from that. And I've had quite a few witches in my ministry come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are now ministering to others because Jesus reached them in that kind of a setting. Mm. But if I wouldn't have talked about it, it wouldn't have happened. Wow. Wow. So um, we as believers really need to become fluent uh, in the truth of God's Word, right? Yes. And we need to be ready and set to defend our faith and to encourage and to give people the truth, because a lot of people are going to feel um, reluctant. that I don't have the skills, I don't have the time, and um, how do I speak intelligently to like things like the lies the culture believes? Part of, well, yeah, that's a tough one for a lot of people. I think we've got to get out of this mentality that church is a drive-through. In other words, I've been blessed to spend time overseas. I've lived in jungles, I've lived in villages with people, in places where Christians were persecuted. One of the best experiences of my life. Now, I'll be honest with you, I was scared to death when I went, but going through that and coming out on the other end of it, I came away realizing it was the best thing the Lord could have done to me. What it did for me, Bill, is that it forced me to say, I can't do church as usual anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't just go to church on Sunday or Wednesday night activity and then live my life as though the two are opposite one another. And too often, I think we have a drive-through mentality when it comes to Christianity. We have a problem in our marriage. We have a problem with our kids. So we want somebody in the church or the Bible to tell us what to do. But when we get into these big problems in the culture, and the culture is falling apart like we see right now, you know what it's like here in Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. We've had a lot of issues. We have. Most Christians wring their hands and they don't know what to do. Even in their prayers, they don't even really know what to pray about. And you look at the diversity of dialogue that's going on out there where everybody's all over the place. Mm -hmm. I keep trying to bring people back to the real issues. To be a, an apologist, I would call it, a defender of the faith. First thing you got to do is really know who this Jesus is. He's not a figurehead. He's not a great teacher. He's not a philosopher. He is who he said he is, God the Son who died and rose again and is coming back again and is the one we answer to. Once I got that in my heart, it began to change the way I looked at people and things around me. Because now I was there to speak for Jesus and I wanted to speak as intelligently as I could. So I began a journey and I encourage others and I've even done teaching on this. I've done classes on apologetics. Part of it is getting people, one, to be exposed to the right processes. How do you go about learning how to apologize or defend your faith? What resources are available? And Bill, I got to tell you, there is no better time to be alive than right now because you and I and our listeners have the internet. Most of the materials that I would spend a week in the library at the seminary or in some big library researching, I can do, and I'm not kidding, in 15 minutes on the internet. Mm -hmm. It is incredible, the information that's out there. The other thing is to remember that there's no problem we face today that the church hasn't faced in the past. And we need to go back and see how the church dealt with that. So the information is prolific. 
It's just learning how to get to it, pay attention to it, and then how to begin to apply it. Mm-hmm. Tom, you know, talk about the, what I hear often is, isn't isn't love the goal? Isn't, you know, and of course that word's been hijacked. And, you know, if Jesus was just a wandering teacher of love, why did they kill him? Mm-hmm. I've heard that a lot. And, uh, you know, I love Tom Brock said the other day on radio that he loves to do funerals. I'm with him. Funerals are a great opportunity because people are coming asking the right questions. Why am I here? What's life about? What happens when I die? And over the last 15 or so years, I almost always say in the message, the goal of Christianity, the goal of Jesus is not that we love one another. The goal is that we submit to him, love him, and then the byproduct is really loving and caring about one another. So love itself is not the goal. I don't know about your kind of love, Bill, but when I'm loving people out of myself without the power of Jesus, I'm pretty selective in who I'm going to love. I've got my own agenda on whom I'm going to love and how I'm going to treat them. And quite frankly, I can be manipulative if I don't permit Jesus to have control. When he has control of my heart, then I can love people genuinely. But the goal of that love is to introduce them to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's what we seem to be missing so much of in Christianity. Tom, do you think when you start having discussions with people and you hear a little bit about their, their past spiritual or religious life, that they have so much misinformation that they almost have to unlearn some things before they can learn things? Or do you think... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they have such rich traditions that are just not true. Well, we do. And and we're all guilty of that. I mean, we've grown up, you know, my dad said this, my mom said that, my church did this. And to be able to step back from that and to look honestly is something that is very hard for most people to do. But if you don't do it, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Uh, Here's an example. In marital counseling, and I did a lot of marital counseling over the years, pre and post. The one thing I heard over and over is that, well, this is the way my parents did it. Mm -hmm. Or this is the way my mom told me I should be as a wife or whatever else. Now, some of those were very valid and they were universal. But a lot of them were born out of mom's or the family's own problems, hurts mistakes, whatever that may be. And so part of it is you've got to sit down and you've got to look deeply into your own soul and then begin to respond to those around you uh, out of the real situation. And the problem is, Bill, and I tell people all the time, one of the reasons we don't get to the real situation with people is we're not the world's best listeners. We really don't know what others are saying. And I find there's hurt and there's pain in everybody's life. And when I take the time to do that, People will talk to me, whether they know I'm a pastor or not. doesn't matter. Just somebody will actually listen. Mm-hmm. And Tom, you know, uh, the goal is always for people to come in contact with the real Jesus, not the one that they have misinformation about, not the one that they have rejected. I've often said when I'm in a discussion, I'll say, you know, if you're not a believer, I would love to, I would love for you to tell me about the Jesus you rejected. Tell me, tell me about the God that you said no to. And you know, oftentimes you hear stories that you go, well, yeah, I probably would have said no to him, too. But you don't know the real Jesus. Right. I think the problem is most of our experience with Jesus is hearsay or rumors mm-hmm. or something that somebody has said along the way. I know that when I challenge people, when they say, well, my Jesus wouldn't do this or right. that, I would say to them, great, can you show me in the Bible where he says that? 
Can you help me understand that in a broader context? And up to this point, Bill, I've never had anybody that could point me to a scripture that would say that. This simply was born out of their own prejudices, fears, worries, whatever it may be. And yet that's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus reveals himself fully in the word of God. And here's what I found, that when he reveals himself in the word and we really study the word, then he reveals himself to our heart. And so I made a habit. I have kind of a rule. My rule is simply this, that when I read the Bible, doesn't matter if I read an Old Testament book or I read the epistles or I read the book of Revelation, I always go back to a gospel. And so I'll read a whole gospel and then I'll read, let's say, Ephesians. Then I'll go back and read another gospel. I've been doing that for nearly 40 years. I can't tell you how many times I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there I get the very best picture of Jesus, his will, his heart, his desire, his love for me, and also his commands, and also the fact that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, yeah, go back and do that over and over and over. And the more you can do that, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. Tom, let me take a little break. When I come back, I want to, I want to talk about Jesus's exclusive claims. And I okay. also want to open up to listeners that we certainly have time for uh, Ask the Pastor a Question. If you like, uh, you can text that question to 877-933-2484-877-933-2484-877-933-2484. Be right back. Just listen to music. It's wonderful. Okay. I'm for it. (laughs) Tom Ferris is my guest. Uh, Tom's a regular guest on Guy Talk, and I wanted to have him on for some Ask the Pastor questions. And also his uh, website is toeternity.org, T-O-eternity.org, toeternity.org. All right. um, Let's talk a little bit about how we talk about the exclusive claims of Jesus, because there's going to be a lot of people instantly turned off when you do apologetics. So you're right. telling me there's only one way. What about all the Hindus? Yeah, exactly. And I think there's where the problem comes in. You know, when you look at it, it comes down to this. Jesus did not give us room to believe anything except that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not give us room to see there's any other means of salvation except through him. Now, I remember C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, Okay, let's get down to the brass tacks. If this Jesus is crazy or thinks he's a man who's a poached egg, then you can dismiss him. You can throw him away. But if he is who he says he is, then you better fall at his knees and cry out, my Lord and my God, Mm -hmm. and understand that Jesus never portrayed himself as a great teacher. And I like what Lewis said. He said he did not leave that open to us. He did not intend to. And that's the reality. Jesus makes the most exclusive claims in the universe. The problem is few of us take the time to look seriously at them. And I've been learning over the years how to get people into the Word so they look seriously at the claims and then come to prayerfully faith in Jesus. And if you look at the exclusive claims of Jesus, some of them, uh, Tom, don't they come across as pretty outrageous? 
to the average they person? They do. You know, well, of course. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a pretty outrageous claim. Uh, pretty strong. I mean, we are in an age of tolerance. I think tolerance is the, the uh, word of the devil to keep people from ever coming solidified in the truth because we want to tolerate everybody. We want to put up with everything around us. And I, I say it's become the Rodney King philosophy, you know, can't we all just get along? The problem is we wouldn't do that with our doctor. We wouldn't do that with a surgeon. We wouldn't do that with our, you know, whoever taking care of our money. We want some real answers. We mm -hmm. want some real direction. And I think the same thing is true here. And when it comes to spiritual matters, believe me, people want the real answers. And that's, Bill, I'll be honest, what's been wonderful for me over the years, and I've lived long enough now, I would have men and women who would reject what I was saying, who would leave the church, who would say, that's just too harsh or whatever else. But when they got sick and they had cancer or they were dying or they were in hospice, guess who they called? They would want me to come and talk to them. And I remember one guy, he, he died the next day and I'm holding his hand. And, and he said, you know, I didn't like what you were saying. I didn't like what the Bible said. I, I didn't want to live that way. But I want to tell you now, thank you for telling me the truth because I'm ready to meet Jesus. Oh, wow. And when you have that happen, I'll tell you, it just, it just hits you so hard. You can't do anything else. That's so powerful. Um, when you hear the idea that, um, you know, we are all God's children, and I know you probably hear that in apologetics. Oh, yeah. And everybody, yeah. everybody wants to be included. Um, and I think that's wonderful that you want to be part of God's family. But there is a born-again experience that one needs yes. to have that become a reality. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is, we, I think as pastors, we've been confusing on talking about this. What I mean by this, we are all his creation. He created everything. The Lord Jesus did. Uh, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit created everything there is. But the Bible is pretty particular that to be a child of God is not someone who is simply born into this world, but someone who has surrendered their life to Jesus. It is through Jesus that we become the children of God. And that's a hard scripture verse, and it's hard for people to grasp, but it is what Jesus said. And in my experience of all these years of living, I have found Jesus' words to be reliable, where human words are not that reliable. So I've learned to trust Jesus alone. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of churches now, Tom, that um, they don't want to. They don't. They don't want to make people feel bad, and so they right. don't want to talk about sin. And that is uh, something that I'm hearing more and more in churches. I just don't know if I hear sermons on sin and hell very often. Right. Well, it's a topic. Who wants to talk about it? It's a hard topic, and yet, here's the thing I've come to realize: if I uh, I fell in my way, love with my wife nearly 50 years ago, and she was nine, I was 10. Uh, we're still young. <laughs> okay. One of the things, one of the problems we had in the first 10 years was communication. And I didn't understand her. And I kept projecting into her the things that I wanted. How often do we do that with God's word? Mm -hmm. In other words, we selectively pick out the things that make us feel good, and we ignore the things that are not there. The thing I discovered uh, with my wife, Jan, is it wasn't going to work that way. She would get angry at me. She would tell me, you know, you're not listening to me. Why don't you hear what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I had to stop and actually learn to do that and do some repenting along the way. I find God's words the same way. Most of us like a casual look at the word of God. 
We love to go and get an answer, that one verse that answers our question or makes us feel better. But I learned a long time ago, if I'm going to do that, I have to take the whole Bible into account. And if I'm going to believe one part, I better believe all the parts. And so as I've made that a habit, when I would preach and teach, uh, I would always offer the grace of Jesus. I would always offer his love and salvation. But I would also offer the reality that there is a hell and there is an eternal separation. And if you don't get right with Jesus, you're not going to be happy on the day of judgment. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, I'm sure you've heard this before when somebody would say to you, well, when I take my last breath, how do I know that I'll be with Jesus for eternity? Mm. Well, I've been blessed, Bill. I've been with more than 50 people at the moment they died. Uh, I can't tell you how the Lord worked that out, but I'm literally there holding their hand. And I would sit there for hours, sometimes overnight with people when the end was near. I'd feel prompted. And I've had person after person after person, either who is in a coma, would briefly come out of the coma, or would say something and tell me, Jesus is here. Jesus is coming for me. Jesus is going to take me home. And as I began to look into the scriptures, Jesus promised. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be where I am. It's not a metaphor. That's not a nice Hallmark card. That's reality. And he literally comes for the believers on their deathbed and takes them by the hand and walks them into the kingdom of God. And I got to tell you, once you see that happen to people, once you've been there at the moment of death, once they've spoken to you and told you what's going on, uh, I've never, again, been the same sense. It dramatically changed my ministry and my way of life. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that so much. Um, when, when I think of getting into apologetics, and let's say I'm a newcomer to apologetics, where would be a good book to start? One of the best books out there right now is Greg Kukul's book called Tactics. I love that guy, and, yeah. I've had him on the yeah, show many times. Yeah. I love him. I love what he's done. In my many years of studying apologetics, and I've read a lot of books, uh, not all of them certainly, but a big chunk of them, Tactics, which came out 10 years ago, has recently been revised, mm-hmm. is probably the best summation of how to talk back to the culture, how to talk sincerely about your faith, how to apologize for what you believe or defend what you believe in a way that is non-threatening, that really doesn't raise a lot of ire, but puts people uh, on the spot. And I think that once we learn how to do that, I mean, my goal is this. I want to both, I want to be able to preach, teach, and at times irritate people. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I want them to go away saying, what did he just say? What does that mean? And there's no greater fun than to have somebody say to you, you know, you kept me awake for a month. I say, what do you mean? <laughs> well, after that sermon, I couldn't sleep at night. Every night I go to bed and think about this. And I said, what conclusion have you come to? Well, you know, it's what you believe and what you taught me. So that's fun to do. Greg Kukul is a good one to do that. And I would recommend him very highly. Josh McDowell is another one. And his son, they write some wonderful, wonderful uh, items out there. But if you can get tactics, start with that one above everything else. Yeah, tactics, I think... You made a good point. I think it just got uh, revised after 10 years. Uh, yes. And after Greg uh, re- put it back out again, I had him on the show. And, and he's got some really good, wise strategies. It's, um, it is really a good book. And Kokel is spelled K-O-U-K-L, Greg Kokel. So it's a good recommendation. Thank you very much. I appreciate Always that. Always wonderful. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Tom, for doing the show. And I will see you on Thursday at Guy Talk. How about that? 
I plan on being there. I look forward to seeing you, Bill. Thank you so much. All right, Tom, have a wonderful uh, night, and thanks again for joining me. You too. Yep. And I want to just say thanks to everybody who uh, made time to be on the show today. A thank you uh, to Rob Bluey and Dr. Rebecca Ree. If you have not visited her website, it is a fun one to go to and check it out. Sign up to be on her um, mailing list for her free blog. It's really lovely. Rebecca Ree, dot net. And we're just sitting so close to the end of the month, and it has been so exciting. So thank you with all my heart for all of you who say, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to support Faith Radio. And I never, ever, ever get tired of saying thank you. So thank you. And I hope you have a great night. And I can't wait for our time again tomorrow. I'll see you then.